Even smart people have a lot of failures here. It's not always easy to know why you failed. You know, a good experiment, they say, is one where you'll learn something no matter what the outcome. This is Biotech Innovators, a podcast designed for those who are curious about how biotech businesses become a reality. In each episode, we highlight the stories of innovators who've overcome the challenges of starting and growing a biotech company. Each story uncovers the tactical steps needed for creating a business that helps make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. Today's podcast is hosted by Biofarm International and features insight from Dr. Brent Cesarian, Vice President of Biology at Octagon Therapeutics, headquartered at Lab Central in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Octagon Therapeutics focuses on advancing autoimmune disease medicines through a targeted treatment approach. The basis of Dr. Cesarian's research is to not only make strides in the field of biotechnology, but to set up a foundation for future research as well. You've been with Octagon since pretty close to their beginning, but you did have a life before the business of biotech came to you. Tell me a little bit about your career before Octagon and what brought you to biotech. Well, I was uh, on an academic career path for quite some time. My PhD and, and then my postdoctoral fellowship for a number of years, focusing on bacterial pathogenesis, essentially. And the switch to industry was really a fortuitous one. It happened because one of my colleagues during my postdoctoral fellowship decided to start a company and asked me to come on, come aboard shortly after it began. Both of us have an in interest in the regulation of metabolism, and he was taking that angle towards developing novel drugs. And I thought it sounded exciting, and it was the easiest job I ever got. So I'm thrilled to still be on board. And you're part of a pretty small crew at this company, right? There's nine of us right now. So I was employee number four. We started, you know, very bare bones, just essentially all of us were doing experiments. And now we've sort of expanded the hierarchy a little bit so to be a little bit more administrative. Some folks are administrative, some folks are more at the bench. I'm a little bit more on the administrative side, which I'm, I've been enjoying actually, especially being able to interface with people in industry and learning what the biotech business is like. That's something that I really hadn't gotten a taste of in the academic setting. And it's really been a great learning experience in the last four and a half years for me. So the first time we talked, you told me that science is a full-time job and I have to say, our listeners, I think, know that. But we also all know that the business side of, of science is a full-time job, too. And now you're kind of exposed to that balancing act, even though being mostly on the science side, you have a front row seat, the business side of Octagon. So from your unique vantage point, what have you learned about that balance in biotech? I really have a greater appreciation for the folks who pound the pavement and are working on the funding aspect of it. You know, it, it's something that we obviously have a taste of in academia too, because everyone has to fund their labs, but it tends to be in the form of written grants almost all the time. And it is sometimes in that case happening with some startups that 
small business grants are what stimulate the business. But essentially, most of the money that comes into a startup is usually, after that phase at least, coming through personal connections and, and business connections. It, it, the focus there is on how you can pitch your science in the form of a talk or a shorter elevator pitch, something like that, which is quite different from funding in academia. In that sense, there are some overlaps because when you're in academia and you're giving a, you know, a talk at a conference, for example, you are playing the long game in trying to pitch your science towards people who are potentially going to make decisions about whether you're going to be hired at a particular institution or whether your paper is going to get accepted at, you know, a high profile journal. So, you know, there is, uh, there's an overlap in the importance of being able to communicate your science verbally, but the funding mechanisms are chiefly writing based in academia and, and chiefly presentation based in industry. So it's really helped give me the opportunity to work on my ability to talk about my science, our science, really better. I'm curious, obviously the presentation is different. And then, you know, the expectations of, you know, someone who's giving out grants versus venture capitalists are obviously going to be different. But how do those differences in funding and presentation and expectation change the expectation of yourself or performance in the lab? How does that change your perception of doing science? There's definitely in the industry always the focus on the therapeutic and everything you're doing has to be driving towards that. In academia, there's more towards the driving towards an understanding of a, of the field. So if there's a big un unsolved question in the field, whether or not there's an immediate therapeutic avenue towards exploiting that information, that's the goal. And that's what is prized and appreciated by one's colleagues and oneself. But in industry, I think asking those questions, you're always going to get the reply, where's the return on investment, you know, in the business, mar in the marketplace? Ah, uh, the ROI. But let's actually talk about those therapeutics. What is the problem you and the team are trying to solve for at Octagon? And what would the world look like without it? Well, our focus is on autoimmune disease treatments. So autoimmune diseases are very common. And they're not really great either understanding of their etiology or ability to treat them. So many of the treatments for autoimmune diseases are treatments for other diseases, for example, like cancer, that have been redeployed in just trying to reduce, for example, the amount or the inflammation associated with immune cells in the body. And we are trying to develop more targeted approaches at specifically the in inflammatory nature of the immune system so that we can retain as much of the immune system as possible and limit the degree to which you know, we deplete the body's ability to fight diseases, for example, and to fight cancer, both of which can happen if you 
severely inhibit the immune system as, as many drugs currently do. And just to be able to target the auto-inflammatory nature of it so that we can reduce the level of flares that people who have autoimmune disease and the severity of the flares that they are experiencing so that they can have a, a more normal life, ideally one where they can't tell the difference between when they're having an episode or, and when they're well, and, and that they can be on a, a long-term therapeutic that is relatively safe and increases their quality of life. It does seem like so many therapeutics, particularly for cancer and, and autoimmune, is most famously for cancer. So many therapeutics are as destructive somewhere else as they are curative for that particular problem. Yes, and, and many of them have gotten better, actually. You know, for, for example, treatments for HIV over the last 30 years have progressed enormously to the point where they've gone from things that made a person quite sick in trying to combat the disease to now treatments where people can stay on the drugs continuously with, in many cases, very little side effect. So we're trying to do something like that for autoimmune diseases. And cancer treatments as well have become more sophisticated. And I think that's another model that we can employ in the autoimmune space, where if you can target the problem precisely, you can do a much better job of minimizing the side effects and hitting the disease at a lower dose. The point is that the more focused you can get your therapeutic, the less side effects you're likely to have and the better the drug is going to be in terms of its efficacy and its therapeutic index. And that's what we're trying to achieve with our treatments for autoimmune diseases. Well, an HIV treatment is such an amazing example in our lifetimes. It was a death sentence, and there was no way we were going to ever develop anything that was going to make it otherwise. And looking back, it seems like such a short time period to have come so far, so fast. Is that possible in treating other diseases? We just need to have little faith and, and put a little more uh, VC money into it? The answer is usually resources and keeping one's expectations, I think, reasonable. What, what I mean by that is it's sometimes said, Without, there's still no cure for cancer, even though the war on cancer was declared in the 1970s. But outcomes for many types of cancer are way better now than they were then. And I think we're seeing this across the board in disease treatments. I think the only type of disease I can think of where there's potential for worse outcomes is in infectious disease, where resistance to antibiotics has become a much larger problem now than it was 40 or 50 years ago. But in most other diseases, ones where we are not necessarily competing against a pathogen, we've seen enormous gains in patient welfare and lifespan and quality of life. I find that concept of keeping one's expectations reasonable really fascinating because so much of it is challenging on the science side, challenging what's already being done and, and finding a maybe an unreasonable way to do things 
is that something you wish you could be doing more of is having an unreasonable expectation? Oh, that's, that's a tough one when you're trying to pitch it to the VCs, you know, unreasonable expectations are something you get dinged for pretty frequently or pretty easily. So I think when people see a result that can be translated directly into the clinic, that's the key to your next step, to your next funding, to the ability to do more research that can get you to something that might have seemed unreasonable three or five years ago. A lot of these great technological advances also come out of academia, out of some of the more risk-taking types of projects. And a lot of those then get translated into, into companies and into the industry. I think there's an appetite for that now more than there's ever been, certainly more than there was when I started in grad school about 20 years ago. Everybody now around me, I think, is thinking about, you know, how can this be a company? How can it be a company? And what would it take to launch a product, you know, based off of that research? Mm, so being reasonable may have as much to do with timing as it does with anything else. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it all depends on on finding someone who who believes that this can be something that there's a market for. And in certain instances, that's relatively easy. So Octagon, we're going after autoimmune diseases. I think no one really questions that there's a market for those types of treatments. You just have to convince people that yours is something that's going to capture enough of a market to make it a good investment. But some of the research, I think, where there isn't so clear-cut a therapeutic avenue or technological innovation that would have market value, those are the tougher pitches to make sometimes because you have to find the right person, the person who, who shares the vision for something a little bit farther into the future than perhaps most people can see or are willing to consider when they're considering how, how they want to allocate their resources. Well, that kind of vision sometimes requires many different perspectives just to get it to come into focus. What's an unexpected lesson that you've learned from helping build Octagon, something you didn't see coming either on the business side or in the lab? If you were originally envisioning a life in academia, it's probably all kind of unexpected or at least unanticipated. Certainly the, the switch from academia to industry was completely unexpected for me. But it is, it is one, I think, that is, I'm grateful for because it does open your eyes to the larger world, quite frankly. The ivory tower is exactly that. And you know, this has been a great opportunity for me to, to interact with people who I otherwise wouldn't have and to get a better appreciation, frankly, for the good that the science that we've been working on can do. Depending on the type of research you do, you can see that directly, in many cases, medical research. But in other cases, biological research can get quite abstract. And that's where I was. And that's what I was enjoying doing in the academic setting. And part of me still pines for that, actually. It's like solving a really, really difficult problem, or at least getting closer to the solution. And in many cases, that was an individual project 
and octagon and, and all industry, almost all industry, I think is, is very group oriented. And that has been something perhaps not unexpected, but very, a very big change from the type of research I was doing to the type I am now and quite a welcome one, Julie. People don't always welcome group work, so that's good to hear. What would you say to someone looking to make that change or what advice do you wish you had gotten then that would have maybe calmed some of the fears you had at the time if you could have seen into the future everything was actually going to be better than fine, it was going to be great? I think I would encourage everyone to, to dip their toe in the pool and, and just to do an internship or spend some substantial amount of time in an industry setting. I think more and more in the academic arena, there's infrastructure being built up for this. At our company, you know, we often employ young people, bachelor's level and master's students, short-term kind of six-month types of stints. They get a pretty good idea what it's like to work at a small biotech from that kind of experience. And I think it's something that anyone who is seriously considering a bachelor's or a post-bachelor's degree in the sciences should explore. I had done research as an undergrad and obviously as a grad student, but it had been in, a, in an academic setting exclusively. And I think being in an industry setting, or at least getting a flavor for what it's like, is something that everyone should do. Having that opportunity to sort of work in science, but with a safety net on the industry side, just sounds like such a great chance to decide if you like something or not, if it's actually for you. Yeah. And, and I don't know if I see it as a safety net so much because... Industry can be brutal in its own way. I'm grateful, by the way, that I'm not responsible for the fundraising at our company, at least not directly. That <laughs> is, is quite a challenge. And it's been an education to watch you know, our CEO and CTO work on the fundraising side. And that's, that's also hard, or at least it can be. But since I think most people now who get PhDs in the biological sciences end up working outside of academia. I think it should be a requisite experience for everyone because if one doesn't enjoy working in the industry setting, then I think there's a good chance that one should probably consider a different field entirely because the academic opportunities in most of the sciences are few right now. And if one were not to be able to be fortunate enough to get one of those opportunities. It's, there are many other fields that one can explore, of course. It's not just industry. But I think if you want to be a research scientist, one should avail oneself of the opportunity to relatively early on in one's education towards that path, see what the industry experience is like. Well, and just like the entrepreneurial path has sort of become a little mythologized, so has the academic life. It's really not just casually teaching classes and occasionally publishing a paper and dabbling around in like your own research. It is not simple or easy, just in a lot of the same ways that 
that the entrepreneurial side isn't easy. It's a lot of hustle that a lot of people don't see to keep the academic side turning. Yeah. And in many ways, academia has become corporatized, I think, in, in the last generation. And so you're, I totally agree. They're, they're not that different from one another in, in many ways. Although the, the opportunities definitely can be more challenging, I think, to uh, capitalize on in academia, given the number of positions have not expanded greatly over the last several decades. Whereas in industry, the number of positions have, has expanded dramatically, especially at the level of startups. We have not seen this level of job opportunity in entrepreneurship in the biological sciences ever. Definitely a time where there are jobs that exist now that I did not even know were an option. Things I never would have thought could be a career possibility 20 years ago are now in abundance, which has been amazing to watch. What is one thing that you hope your work at Octagon will be ultimately remembered for? So that's a good question. And the first thing I think of when answering that is, will it be remembered? That's the one big difference that I had to come to terms with in, in considering industry versus academia is that the published paper may or may not come to exist as a consequence of industry research. Whereas it is essentially the coin of the realm in academia, it is sometimes discouraged in industry because one doesn't want to reveal trade secrets or lose the opportunity to patent something in the future. So very often you will see publications come about when in industry when a, when a project is tabled. And I do think that the attitudes toward that are changing somewhat, but uh, for a small company like ours, I caution with regard to the sharing of data is the, the most important thing. And uh, that means that in some cases, I, I can't share many details with colleagues. And that's something that I, I wish I could do. But I think, you know, the opportunity to publish eventually would be great. And if that's the case, you know, what we've done will, will be, if not remembered, at least able to be recalled in the future. But in terms of what the, the research that we're doing would be ideally remembered for is, I think, to crack open a novel mechanism of disease treatment. I think if you can sort of forge a different path that presents an opportunity for a type of treatment that can help people where others, other treatments are unsuccessful, that is just, that would be fantastic. And it could go beyond, you know, we, we might develop a first generation drug and, and others may improve upon these things. But to know that you were instrumental in forging that path, I think would be something I would I, ideally, if we are successful, I hope we will be what we would like to be remembered for. I think we're living in a time now where the steps of incremental progress are more noted or at least recorded than ever before. I think even if it's the first stage of progress, you'll still make the Wikipedia article. Only time will tell on that. But it, it's not so much about others remembering me. I think it's, it's as 
as, as knowing oneself that one made the contribution. And if it's written down so much the better, even if there isn't the name recognition there, not, that's not too important to me. But, you know, the, the saddest thing I can imagine is, is to live a life, you know, working in science and imagine if all of the results somehow got, you know, destroyed and there were nothing left of what you'd done and nothing from which someone else could learn and push forward from. As long as we have, you know, some record of what we've done, I think it'll be worth it. I think surgeons are much better at this. They, they tend to name things after themselves, methods and procedures. Biotech, you know, no one sees all the hours in the lab and all the, uh, the failures and all the, the Petri dishes that get chucked out. So a little more, a little bit more self-aggrandizing, maybe, maybe <laughs> then it's and Yeah, that's tough. You know, because the system is so complicated, there's even smart people have a lot of failures here. And it's not always easy to, to know why you failed. You know, a good experiment, they say, is one where you'll learn something no matter what the outcome. And at the beginning of grad school, they always make you read all these seminal papers that, for which that is the case. You know, they design some very clever experiments that no matter what the outcome was going to come up with a significant result. That's in retrospect, of course. Everyone wants to design those types of experiments, but you don't necessarily know if what you're going to get out of it is going to be interpretable in the way that you'd like it to be, because almost all the systems that all of us study are have more variables than we can measure. And so the relationship between different inputs and outputs are incompletely measured. And that just makes it very hard for us to take a failed hypothesis and sometimes, you know, improve it. And so there is all that failure that I think we sometimes, you know, it doesn't get published or it doesn't get talked about. And one doesn't really get the credit for sometimes for, for trying something, especially something risky if it doesn't work out. Or eliminating an option is not as, as lauded until there's a solution. I agree. It's hard to say sometimes if, if one can truly eliminate an option. There are all these caveats in lots of experiments because you just, your system isn't necessarily representative, let's say, of a human or of if you're working in a petri dish, it may not be representative of, of any animal system. And so if you fail, that may not mean that your hypothesis is necessarily wrong, but you just didn't have the system in place to test it the way it really is. But either that's all you can afford to do, or that's the only type of system where you can make the measurements that you want to make under the current technological barriers that we have. So those things are, are really being pushed now. We can get more and more data under more and more different types of experimental conditions. I think the challenges have become like not can we do an experiment, but which experiment should be done under the constraints of our resources and which variables are we going to measure in these experiments? And there are so many you have to choose because there's not infinite resources and infinite amount of time to try them all. Yeah, I think what has happened is because there are 
so many more types of experiments and really, I think, a, a larger range of costs of different types of experiments that there's a lot more care that has to be taken in the types of decisions that are made. And certainly we feel that as a startup company, you know, that every experiment we do is, is one, it means that there's a bunch of experiments we can't do. And we, we want to choose those experiments very carefully. And it's hard to pick everything correctly. It's impossible. But based on the knowledge that you have and the funding that you have and the time constraints that you have, you do your best. And I think that's where it's great to have a team, you know, going back to the question of individual work versus teamwork, to be able to bounce your ideas off of other people on a, on a daily basis, sometimes in the form of heated arguments, is overall very beneficial to having effective resource allocation, as long as the arguments don't last an infinite amount of time. But, but isn't that always the hope with any argument? Well, I only had one more question for you. It's the same thing I ask everyone at the end. What do you want people to know right now about your current work and what Octagon is trying to accomplish? That's a big question. And I will probably end up giving a relatively small answer. We are exploring some novel types of biology. So we've essentially built a platform that can measure changes in metabolism under healthy and disease conditions. We think this is something that has been not fully appreciated up to now, and one that has been yielding us some insights in how diseases may better be treated. So there's been a lot of emphasis in the last decade or so over high-throughput gene expression analysis and proteomics. and what Octagon is doing is expanding that platform beyond the levels of gene expression or beyond the levels of proteins to protein activities, essentially catalytic rates. And by measuring those over a wide space of different possible catalytic types of activity, we think we are catching changes in cellular metabolism that are not so easy to catch just by looking at gene expression or protein levels. I can say a little more because metabolism is what I'm you know, most interested in. And I think it's fundamentally what life is, right? It's taking materials from the environment, converting them into something and spitting something out and doing that continuously and growing and, and creating an environment where a unit that can do that can propagate. And... The study of metabolism is complicated because it involves lots of different types of molecules. So whereas DNA is essentially the same you know, type of polymer, uh, RNA, and protein is a bit more complicated in terms of the number of components it has, the analysis of these types of things has pipelines have developed for them. Metabolism is a little trickier because... There are a lot of different measurements that have to be made, and it's hard to make those measurements inside of a cell, and it's hard to do a bunch of them at the same time. So this is a field that has been improving with technological advancement, but we think you know, instead of focusing on the level of different 
cellular metabolites, which is what sort of classical metabolomics does, we are focusing on the catalytic abilities of a cell that change as a function of changing environment. For example, during disease or during exposure to a different type of nutrient source. That will sound more theoretical, I guess, than I realized, uh, not in an impractical way, just what happens if we do this, which does sort of lead back to the idea of infinite number of experiments you could be doing with an infinite number of variables and choosing has to be so difficult. What we've been able to do is put together a platform where we can relatively inexpensively identify what we believe are metabolic changes in a cell during disease that are worth putting more resources towards understanding better. And so we can eliminate a bunch of options and focus on a few types of enzymes or catalytic activities or substrates that we believe have some role in the development of disease and could possibly be manipulated, you know, therapeutically in order to mitigate disease. Thank you for joining us on Biotech Innovators. This show is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, the world leader in serving science. If you enjoyed what you learned in this episode, make sure to follow Biotech Innovators wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.